0: at mikecrock.com forward slash book that's mike C-R-O-C.com forward slash book go get yourself a copy and subscribe to the what are you made of podcast on itunes spotify or your favorite podcast platform if you like watching these it's available on youtube at my channel mike Rock scirocco now enjoy the show welcome back to another episode of what are you made of with your boy that is filled with rocket fuel, Mike Searock. Guys, I have a great guest today, Steve Sims, man. Steve Sims is in the house, founder of Bluefish. Wait till you hear about this. Uh, You know, Steve actually, you know, I I love this. And you guys know the bricks behind me. My dad was a bricklayer to Mason, but Steve actually began his career as a bricklayer in London. 1980, Sims started a stockbroker job in London where he worked for about six months, eventually transferred to Hong Kong where he was fired in five days. We got to hear about that. And after losing that job, he stayed in Hong Kong where he uh, worked as a doorman for a nightclub, and that basically helped him build this network, which supported this 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 venture, Bluefish, which we'll hear about here in a second. Um, and by the way, guys, anytime you start something, I mean, you got to have some kind of network. People are the are the answer to things, uh, and we'll find out more about that as we get into this. But uh, so Steve actually started Bluefish, and what this does is it caters to people to to basically chase bucket list items it sounds like to me adventures for example private party dinner six uh uh, for six at the feet of michelangelo's david uh dinners in italy while being serenaded by andrea bocelli underwriter under (laughs) underwater tours of the titanic come on man steve I, i i'm gonna i'm gonna let you get into more of this but listen the question i always ask my guests
1: is what are you made of cool wow so you went in with a softball um Ignorance. Um, And I I say that because my wife actually said it was my superpower once I had a a dinner party here at my house and I had a a bunch of people that um, we had a couple of the main characters actors from the Marvel movies. And so they started this game in my in my in my house. Um, If you had a superpower, what would it be? And I was trying to show off. I was trying to think of something that sounded articulate and intelligent. And when it got around to my turn, my wife just turned around and she went, oh, Steve's superpower. He's ignorant. And I thought to myself, shit, I'm getting divorced. And I'm looking at everyone around the table and they're are all, all thinking the same. And she turned around and she said, no, 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 think about it. How many times has Steve ever done anything that you've gone? How the hell did he pull that off? You know, and I've worked with Elon Musk, and John, you know, the Pope. I have worked with some pretty spectacular people, but I've never overthought it. I've just overdone it. So I've never, and my wife explained, he's been ignorant to the potential of failure. He's been ignorant to the point that they could ever refuse him or say no. He's been ignorant to the fact that it could go any other way than the way that he wanted. So his superpower is ignorance. So I would say quite simply, I'm an ignorant little five-year-old Irish lad from East London.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Hey, listen, so I'm big on definitions because, you know, uh, you know, most of the time I realized when I was younger, I stopped reading books or I didn't understand uh, a topic and I quit on it was because I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking up definitions uh, of words, even if I thought I understood them. And so let's look at the definition of ignorant real quick because this is, this is great. Lacking knowledge or awareness in general uneducated or unsophisticated. So really the first part, lacking knowledge or awareness in general, sounds to me like you you lack the knowledge and awareness of what could go wrong and didn't give a shit and then just push forward, right?
1: Well, I'm 53 years old. So when I started this career off, I didn't have Instagram to tell me how inadequate my life was. So I was ignorant to how it should be, or more importantly, what I should be scared of. Um, the amount of people now that I've literally introduced to some to their heroes, and the first thing they do is they, they kind of bow. They lower their head, or they get nervous, or they get scared, or they get frightened. How many times does that fear actually stop us actually going forward? So I was ignorant to any of that reaction.
0: Yeah, I love it. And, you know, it reminds me of one of my words for this year, stubborn. Mm -hmm. And I could talk about persistence, but there's a a lullaby effect. When you talk about persistence, everybody hears persistence, persistence, and it runs in one ear out the other. That's the lullaby effect. If You haven't heard of that before to the audience. Um, And so I use the word stubborn because there's two words in stubborn that have a huge meaning to me. And it relates to what you're talking about, which is perversely unyielding. So you sound like the kind of guy like myself, when I want something, I get it. And it's not because Mm -hmm. it's handed to me. It's because I'm perversely unyielding. I go and I go and go until I get it. Now, is that how you approach these things?
1: Yeah, Jay Abraham paid me a compliment. I'm not sure if he was trying to give me a compliment, but he said to me once that I had a greater I can than an IQ. And I've realized that, as we all know, experience is something we get three seconds after we needed it most. But the more times I fail, the more experience I become, the more educated I become, the more I achieve. So it just seemed natural for me to keep going, regardless of whether or not, I should be trying it, whether or not I'm prepared, educated, or even articulate in whatever I'm trying to get. Just keep going, and you'll be amazed at how many more things you achieve.
0: Yeah, you know, speaking of that, when I started this show, and I, I just wrote a book, Rocket Fuel, by the way, uh, talks about turning setbacks into rocket fuel and, and becoming unstoppable. But I, I was not the best English student. I was not the best writer. I, I Having a podcast, I don't even talk right. But you know what? People started giving me feedback. They're like, I love your content. You're genuine. You're transparent. You're just down to earth like us. And that, I rode that. So, so I think sometimes, you know, uh, your, 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 you know, lack of something can become your strength
1: and people can appreciate that and relate to it. And that seems like what you've done. I I love it, man. Oh, you're kidding. I've noticed, like I launched a concierge firm before I launched my coaching business not because I was particularly good with people or that I wanted to handhold billionaires and do these amazing things. I did it for a very selfish reason. I wanted to have a Rolodex of billionaires. And at the height of my business, I had 93 clients and pretty much all of them were in the top 500 richest people in the planet. So I just wanted to be able to ask them, how do you see things? And I noticed one thing that happened, there was almost like a matrix moment. I noticed that every single one of my clients was a serial failure. They just didn't allow it to define them; they allowed it to refine them, and they weren't fighting to make mistakes. While everyone else is out there going, "Oh, I don't want to try that," or "Oh, I'd like to do that, but I can't," or "I don't know," and they come up with more reasons and energy why not to do something than why they should. I noticed that the billionaires that I dealt with they looked at things differently. And me, I'll go for anything. I'll try anything and I will be thrilled to fail because that's where the education lies. When I was the doorman of a nightclub in Hong Kong for about two days, I thought I was at the lowest point of my life. My job was to basically slap people and, you know, coerce them to get out of the club. That Mm -hmm. was what it came to. I didn't realize until a few days afterwards that I now had a, 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 platform to watch humanity to see how people interacted to see what was important to people and that's what launched my my whole future had i not had that moment working on the door of a shitty nightclub in hong kong i would not be able to be here and text elton john you know i just would not be in the position i am today so what so what happened
0: Right after that, that that that
1: recognition, like a,
0: a, a realization, I should say, that you you had, like what, what happened from there. Take us through that.
1: So I believe all entrepreneurs, you know, while we may be very different, we we carry something that's very similar. We have it. We have a DNA. We have a gene, and I th- I call that the aggravation gene. And as Joe Polish says, you know, aggravated oysters make pearls. Entrepreneurs, we spend a lot of our time pissed off and aggravated, and we have to therefore go and solve it. You know, so. That's what we are. I needed to be around rich people because as a bricklayer from East London, I knew what being poor was like and it sucked. I was poor. I wanted to hang around with rich, affluent people. So I needed to change the room I was in. When I was on the door, I started playing this game as a bunch of people would come towards me and no one talks to the doorman. You know, we're there just to slap people. No one wants to get into a conversation with us. So I would play the game. Why are you here? And it literally it was silly, but I would play this game. You know, I'd see a bunch of girls come up and I'd be like, are they out on the pool? Are they celebrating a contract? Are they high school friends that are getting together? Are they celebrating? Someone's getting married. Is it a henna? And I would look at whoa, the way whoa, whoa. They- out on the
0: pool. What is that about? I <laughs> like hey,
1: You know, going out to try and find a bunch of guys, you know? (laughs) I I love it. (laughs) it. I love it. And I would just, I would play this in my head based on their mannerisms, their body language, their interaction with each other. And I would try to guess why they were entering the club. And so then as they would get to the door, I'd be like, evening, ladies, what are we celebrating tonight? Why are we here? And I would see if I got it right purely based on their body language. And then as I started to get really good at it, I then started, oh, we're celebrating a contract. My boy just sold his business, got an eight-figure deal. I'll be like, oh, good for you. Let's make sure we got you a good booth inside. And I would find a reason to communicate with these people. Yeah. So it actually became a great pedestal to look at people. And I noticed one thing very early on, because I've always been, you know, thick-headed Irish boy, earrings, piercings. For anyone that can't see this and is listening to the podcast – stunningly good looking British guy. Yes, he is.
0: Yes, I will vouch for that.
1: (laughs) But I never wanted to change what I looked like, but I wanted to get involved with the right kind of people and I wanted to become a solution to them. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to find out what made them tick. And so I used to start, you know, closing the club early and keeping those people behind just to, you know, have the pretty girls there and have your, the whole restaurant or the uh, the club just to yourself. I suddenly found that I wanted to find out what made these pe- people tick. And I remember this one moment happened. I was in Hong Kong and this guy pulled up on a car. And, uh, you know, it sounds silly to say, but I asked myself the question. Sounds like I talked to myself a lot, but I did. Good for you. I love it. I wanted I to know... Did he drive the car up to the front of the nightclub? And this may sound silly, or did the car drive him? Now, when you get, when someone gets out of the car and they put that jacket on, they talk to the valet guy and they step in the club, you know, they don't need the car to arrive. But then you would get the other people that would step out of the car and they would put that jacket on like it was freaking slow motion. They wanted everyone to know, hey, I've got this car. You know, and they were told like, "Hey, this is a this is a new Ferrari. Make sure it's protected." You know, I, I suddenly realised, is the car driving them or are they driving the car? And a lot of people, and Instagram is a perfect example of this. A lot of people use these things as props to gain credibility, to gain prestige. I wanted to buy a, I wanted to be a guy in a black t shirt with earrings, riding up on a motorcycle, and not needing that. I wanted to have that and not need any other pop to give it. So that was a very early lesson that I gave. I wanted to turn up with credibility and substance. Then my journey began. How do I get that?
0: Yep. And, and in Hong Kong, was there a lot of
1: was there a lot of uh, tourists that came into that club? From all so over the, yeah, all over the world. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I was in there just before ninety seven. I'd gone over there for, uh, applied for a job. And you you said I got fired in five days from the job that I applied for in Hong Kong. Uh, I think someone gave you the information. I got fired in 24 hours. So I had turned up in Hong Kong for a stockbroking job. They realized I didn't know my head for my ass and they fired me. <laughs> and I was like, crap, I'm now in a different country. Got a little bit of cash. They let me have the apartment for two months, but that was it. And so trying to find another job and ended up at quite simply a shitty bar, I had a lot of foreigners um, and a lot of local um, business people that were expatriates. So I had a lot of Americans, Australians, uh, Russians all coming into this bar. So I got to see not only how people interacted with each other, but how different cultures interacted with each other or not. And so it it was a big eye opener for me. You say about, you looked at the reason behind words Uh, you know what they meant the explanation I was now able to communicate with people that never would I have a room full of different cultures and people it was a great eye-opener for me and so when what was the first thing you put together for someone so it, it started off I started closing the club down then what I wanted to do was I wanted to surround myself with rich people so I would literally send out faxes two rich people going, there's a private party this Friday night. And here's something that was weird. If you sell alcohol in a venue, you need a liquor license. If you give it away, you don't need the license. So I started charging $500 and all the food and drink was free. (laughs) Only because I didn't want the liquor license. And then what I would do was I'd be like, okay, I'll fax it out to 200 people. And depending on how many people say yes, and you could pay pay me the money, depending on how many people said yes, then I would get a location that fixed. So my first party, I think, was like a dinner party because I had eleven people pay, you know. And the next, and I'd have like pretty girls there, a cool DJ, cool vibe. And I would try and do a twist on different things. Was but this in Hong what, Kong
0: too? This, this was
1: in Hong Kong. Kong. But I went from throwing dinner parties to taking over yachts, to taking over mansions, to then working with the New York Fashion Week, Ferrari, Formula One. As an entrepreneur, I never saw a ceiling. I have worked with everyone from Sir and John's Oscar party to the New York Fashion Week, to the Grammys, to Formula One in Monaco, just basically offering it to rich people, never to poor people. Why? Because I knew poor people couldn't afford shit because I've been poor. So I would always try to create a mystification, a desire, extreme the FOMO to get rich people to want to be there. And I would end up sending uh, um, invites out for people to come to my parties and charging them $10,000 to be at one of my parties. And as long as people paid, I found a market. (laughs) I just love it, man. It's It's like a fairy tale, isn't it? It's, oh my well, people will go like people still I run events called speakeasies and they're two thousand dollars. And people are like, who the hell are gonna pay you two thousand dollars? And I'll answer, well, not you, <laughs> but I'm always sold out, so you're gonna yeah. find your market. So where are you now?
0: I'm in Los Angeles, California. Okay, and, and that's that's a good place for you now for what you do,
1: besides COVID. But do you know, funny enough? No. Um, and here's the funny thing: I moved to LA because I ride motorcycles and it's got some of the best motorcycle roads in the planet. Okay. I'm here for it's, it's heat, it's style, it's creativity. The trouble with Hollywood is they all think they should get it for free. And the amount of times I get people going, well, you know, Hey, I'm a new rapper and I'll mention your name in a lyric, or you can get a photograph with me, but you've got to fly me here and my boys screw that. I deal with people that own things like, the largest real estate owner in Saint Petersburg, Russia. Some of my clients are not only royalty; they own things like countries that you would have no idea who they are, but could buy the celebrity thirty times over. Right. So right. I work with quite simply billionaires, not the ones that are playing it. So, you, so you would have these these speakeasies, these parties, and then
0: from there, like, how did you get into uh, destinations or or? Uh, bucket list things like what where did it, where did it take that turn
1: i like i like the challenge as entrepreneurs we like to be challenged you brought up one of them i had a billionaire client of mine that said that he wanted to have the ultimate florence dining experience and so i was like all right how can i take a dining experience i e having a meal how can i take that into the realm of stupid um and my book blue fishing uh, talks a lot about this, but my next book that I'm writing now, Go for Stupid talks about don't go for the impossible. Go for something that's so ridiculous that people laugh at you. you know you know <laughs> you know you're going for a great goal when people think it's stupid. So when I had this guy said he wanted the ultimate dining experience, I literally took over a museum that houses the world's most iconic statue, Michelangelo's David. And I got the museum to shut down at three o'clock in the afternoon, kick the public out, give it to me until two o'clock in the morning. I set a table of six up at the feet of Michelangelo's David, and halfway through the the uh, the meal, and the clients are chomping on their pasta. I brought in Andrea Bocelli to serenade them while they're eating their meal. You know, that <laughs> yeah. is the most amazing and could never be repeated Italian meal experience. Wow. So. I always try to see how far can I take it. I've had clients go, "Hey, I want to I want to, you know, go backstage and meet my favorite rock band." And I'm like, "Screw that. I'm going to put you on stage during the concert and they're going to have you sing two uh, two tunes." You know, I've had people do drum lessons with Guns N' Roses, race Formula 1 cars with Formula 1 drivers, play golf with their icons. I try to see how I can take what you want and add some magic into it and go for stupid. I wanted to take
0: a quick break here to remind you that my book rocket fuel is available for sale now at Mike forward slash book. That's Mike C R O C.com forward slash book. Go get a copy and share it with your friends and family. It will change lives guys. I would not let you down now back to the show. So take me through this. So let's say I'm a client and I want to do something. Um, h- how do you approach it to make sure that it's what they want? Um, you know, you, you don't have a catalog. So it's more about
1: what they want. So tell me what you want. And then I'm going to shape it. Right. Is that how, so I do right, that go through it. Yeah. I do that with my concierge clients. And I also do it with my coaching clients It's actually the same process on both. I always say, never listen to what the person asks for. Never give them what they ask for. Give them what they lust and desire for. Mm-hmm. Now the daft thing is if I, if I, you know, threw a bunch of whiskeys down your throat and then said to you, hey, if you could do anything, what would it be? You may be like, oh, I want to go up in a space or I want to go and, you know, play drums with, you know, Guns and Roses, or I may want to do it. You would have no reservations. Right. You would just blur out these things and you wouldn't overthink. You would just tell me. Yep. In the morning, if I asked you, hey, if you could do anything you'd settle and you would restrict your dreams. There's no parameters when we dream, but when we're talking to another person, we get embarrassed. We get very kind of like, oh, um, uh, I would want to, you know, maybe do this. You suddenly restrict restrict it is what you want. The job of a good coach, mentor, or even concierge is to grill you down to the why. And then once we know what the why is, the core – then we can actually take it further and start going, okay, now we know what we're dealing with. Now we've actually got our fuel. Now we know the why. Now I can look at doing this. If you give someone what they ask for, Amazon's just waiting to take your job. So what you want to do is every time someone comes up to you and go, oh, uh, I would like to launch my business and do this. Well, why are we settling there? Why aren't we looking to do XYZ that's 10 times bigger than that? Oh, and this is the stupid answer. Because I've never done that before, people always go for what they think is achievable. Yet, if you've never done anything magical, how do you know what you're capable of? It's our job to actually get you uncomfortable and get you to be where you should be. So, so
0: when, let's say for that example, uh, somebody wanted to play golf with Tiger Woods, yep, and then have dinner with Tiger Woods, yep, and then maybe go out on his boat, right? Yep, all right. So let's just say that's the case. What, what's your first step? After you finish with the client, finding out everything they want to do, and then you have it in your mind, like what's really going to go down, what,
1: where do you take it from there? All right. I'm going to kind of answer that question with a different story about a different sure, celebrity. Sure, sure. All right? Yep. Understanding the why is everything. You see, if you go up to a client and you go, hey, Tiger, how much will it cost me? to?" They're going to hang up on you. Yeah. Okay. No celebrity wants to be purchased. They don't want to be a prostitute. It's as simple as that. It's the easiest way to get a celebrity to hang up on you. You've got to lead the conversation with a why and a story. Now, I've worked with Sir Elton John and his Oscar party for like eight years. And a few years ago, I think it's about three years ago, a perfect example of the question you're asking came up. I had a client phone into the office and one of the girls actually put it through to me and she said, you got to talk to this guy because he wants to go to Sir and John's Oscar party. And I went, well, sell him a ticket. She went, no, no, no. He wants to meet Sir and John. And I went, put him through. I need to know why. So I, I said to him, Hey, how you doing? You know? And he's like, Hey, you know, I'm so, and so I said, Oh, great. I said, I oh, hear you want to meet Elton John. He went, yeah, I do. I went, why now why can be, and for a lot of people is the most uncomfortable and a combative word out there. You know, people will text me and go, hey, Steve, we should get together and have a beer. And I'll just respond, to, respond with why. <laughs> I want I want to know why. They may go, oh, I'm in your area you? and I've got this. and yeah. I'll get people to say, well, how rude is that? It's not rude. I just want to know what's the reason. That's up, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and you'll be amazed at the answers you get, which if someone takes the time to answer it, then I'll go and have a beer with them. Right. But I, I said to this guy, Why? And he, and this is a true story. He literally turned around and went, well, you know, he's an icon. Everyone knows Elton. He's one of the last greats. He's going to die soon, and I want to get a picture from my desk. <laughs> that was literally how <laughs> he answered it. So I went, oh, that's great. Now, all of that is very superficial, isn't it? It's all surface. Yeah. There's no depth to it. So I went, oh, that sounds fantastic. Let me have a chat with him, and I'll come back to you. And I hung up. Never took his phone number. Never took his email. Didn't care. Time went on and we got to about a month and a half away from uh, Elton's party here in Hollywood. I was actually living in Palm beach at the time when I was getting these calls. And I got one of the girls from my office for some reason, I just had girls working at the office and she contacted me. and She said, Hey, I've got a guy that wants to meet Sir Elton John. He sounds very similar to the other guy that you didn't call back. Cause I told him I wasn't going to call him back. They went, I'm wondering if it's his mate trying to get an angle in because you wouldn't call him back yeah and i went yeah it could be put him through so this guy comes on the phone another new yorker brash strong powerful abrupt kind of language in the tone and the conversation he's like hey how you doing i'm like hey how are you so yeah i want to meet sir elton john so i went oh that sounds fantastic why and he went. Well, you know, he's one of the one of the last greats. He's, uh, you know, well known. in His music. He's a, he's an icon. He's known by everyone. And, and you know, he's he's phenomenal. And uh, he went through pretty much the same as what yeah. the first guy did. Yeah. Until the last moment, he went. Oh, and you know, what? Well, there's things. And I remember him. He said, "There's things." His tone changed. Now, if any of you have read Chris Voss's book and never split the difference. He talks about getting into your midnight DJ voice, match your tonality with the person's enthusiasm, and then change the tone and see where the conversation is. So I'm like, oh, that's all fantastic. That's great. What things? (laughs) And I pulled the tone down and he went quiet. And he said, well, I'll tell you. And this is literally uh, true story. He turned around and he said, When I was a kid, and his tone was all down. When I was a kid, my dad would take me to school. He would take me to school. He would pick me up in school all the way until I got a car in high school. It was always my dad, never my mum. My mum would wave at the door, but it was always my dad would take me to school and bring me home. He said, The first car that my dad used to take me to school had a cassette in it. He said, and The cassette was stuck. We could play it, but we couldn't eject the damn thing. It was Elton John's greatest hits. <laughs> All the way there, we would sing Elton John. All the way back, we would sing Elton John. As I'm walking towards the car to get picked up from school, my dad would be playing Elton John. We'd jump in the car, not talk, but sing. He said, and all the way up, he would do this. He got another car that had a CD in it. He said, so he bought Elton John's Greatest Hits, and we did the same thing with this CD. He said, and when I got to high school, I would get in the car and I would look out the window so embarrassed that my dad is singing out and John, but he would carry on singing. And again, as he would pick me up from high school, I could hear Sir Elton John just singing in the car and I'd open up the door and quickly get in and slam the door so no one else can hear Elton John blaring. He said, all the way to, all the way back, he said, and I can remember my first day in a car away from him, driving myself to high school, not having this to the Elton John. He said, now, my dad died about 10 years ago. He said, I've got kids now. He said, and if I'm driving down the road and the radio's on and say so Elton John comes on, my dad's alive with me for three minutes. He's in the chair next to me singing Elton John. I want to meet Elton John. And I want to say thank you for bringing my dad back to me a random three minutes every now and then when the radio's on. there was the why yep. the guy got deep on it. And I, I, I will tell you quite openly, I had tears in my eyes when I was listening to that on the phone call. And when I finally spoke to Elton, I told him the story, the money was secondary. It wasn't even in the conversation. Yes. He had to pay. He made a donation to the charity, but the bottom line of it is I made the introduction from my client to Sir Elton John. He told the story and they both hugged as he told that story and I swear I couldn't hear the story because it was loud in there but I already knew it when they hugged and there were tears in each other's eyes I again had tears in my eyes that was the why you've got to find the person's why in order to be able to get them to where they need to be
0: yeah man that's freaking great powerful stuff man so so gosh norm man I'm trying to think of my dream thing. So let me ask you this. What's the, what's the least expensive one you, that you had to accomplish, and what's the most expensive one?
1: Uh, international space station, $60 million. We have put the first civilian up into space. Um, that was 60 mil. Um, Atta boy, <laughs> the cheapest one is probably one of the most impactful ones. Um, I had a client of mine, uh, well, still got him. Um, and every year he contacts us around his, uh, his anniversary. And he's like, right, what are we going to do for the anniversary this year? And each year we've done something crazy. You know, we've flown them <coughs> to a destination for a meal for one night and then flown them back. We've gone from like $15,000 to half a million dollars being spent on one anniversary event. Okay. And then one day he contacts me and he's like, it's anniversary. And I'm like, oh, what year? And it's like, oh, it's the 20th. So it was a milestone year. And he said, I want something fantastic. I want something brilliant. I want to create impact here. And I remember that last bit, the create impact. So I went, okay, where did you meet? And he met at at college with her. And he tried, you know, asking her out for a date. She weren't having it. And then one day what he did was he borrowed his parents' um, picnic rug and hamper. And he had this boom box that would make run DMC proud. He had actually recorded a bunch of like soppy tunes on there. Alexander O'Neill, Janet Jackson, all that kind of period, the SOS band. Yeah, the classic stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he had recorded these these tunes on there. And what he did was he had a bottle of champagne and he set up this just outside with her class. So that when she came out of class, he popped the champagne, hit the uh, boom box and he went, Care to join me? And he had a glass of champagne. Now, they actually got in trouble because they had alcohol on college, okay? (laughs) And he got in trouble for it. But she he had tried to date her for many, many attempts. She'd not given it. And now he's in the middle of of the college campus looking at idiot for her. She couldn't do anything other than join him. That started it, okay? So we said, why don't we recreate that? So we actually set up, now we, we got pictures from his parents to find out what the picnic rug looked like, what the hamper looked like, and what the boom box looked like. And here's the daft thing. We set up a picnic in a public park, so there was no expense, okay, there. You know, the rug, we found a rug, a cheap rug, bought the rug, they had a hamper, they made up some, a, a bit of catering in there. The most expensive thing was to find a boom box that actually worked. Right, and right, it, right. it was the thing, and this will make you laugh. We got this boombox that, you know, Run DMC would have been happy about. I could have shoved it on my shoulder, grabbed me lino, and everyone would have been proud. How do you record onto a cassette today? We, we don't have any cables anymore, do we? Mm, yeah. We had to send the cassette off with a list of tunes to get a, a, a uh, an engineer, one of these music groups, to actually give us the tape we wanted. And the first boom box we got, didn't play the cassette. We had to go and buy another one off of eBay. So bottom line it was, it cost us $1,500. It would only have cost us about a thousand bucks if the first bloody boom box had worked. But what we did was we shoved her into a limo and we sent her off. And uh, she was very excited. She spent like 10 years doing all of these amazing experiences. The limo drove her around while we quickly set up this picnic and got him over there. The, the limo pulled up to the park, the door opened up, the doorman got her out. He was sat on this picnic rug and he knocks open the the champagne. Again, it was alcohol in a public park. So he would've got in trouble had we been found out, but he opens up the whiskey and he went, care to join me. She took one step away from the car fell onto her knees sobbing her eyes out because it was the exact recreation of the first time he ever met her. The doorman, the the, the driver that had the door open, closed the door was stunned. Now he's got his client there and she's like, and she's not just tears. She has lost it. He recreated everything down to the Alexander O'Neill on the playlist and it all came back to her. You see, impact doesn't have a price tag, right? It's that it trigger wow. that takes you back to a moment that meant everything, the tune that was playing when you were first proposed to, or you know, the smell from when the when you had your first baby, the rainy day, whatever is the trigger that is the impact, not the price tag. I literally had to go over there, and the, the driver from one side and me from the other side. We helped her up and escort her over to this picnic rug and she just collapsed in her arms. So that was the cheapest thing that we've ever done, but I would say equally as impactful yeah, as anything man. else we've ever done. That's awesome.
0: So Steve, man, damn, I, I love these things, man. I'm going yeah. to be working with you one day. I, I know it. Uh, I'm going to be looking for something for myself, my wife. I know, I know that's the case. So uh, I'm setting the intention now. Um, but let me ask you about Steve though. Uh, what, what do you get your your dreams and fantasies met not just serving other people that's i know that's probably what you, you're passionate about but what about what steve wants to do is there anything that you want to do that you haven't done yet
1: i've hung around with orchestras rock stars politicians uh, kings queens i never thought i'd be doing any i didn't think i'd be on a podcast with you my boy you know <laughs> i just i ride motorcycles i barbecue and i drink whiskey cocktails I'm probably one of the bornest people, if that's the right word, most boring people you would ever meet. I just get to live vicariously through people's whys. Um, and now rather than me actually can kind of like still spending people's money to give them amazing cocktail stories. I get to coach people. Uh, I have a Facebook group called an entrepreneur's advantage where literally it's free of charge. So there's no pitch um, where I literally teach people how they can do it for themselves. Um, I'm amazed at how many people don't challenge themselves to do more, to go for impact, to keep it raw and ugly. So I'm, I'm very proud that in my early fifties, this is my life. I get to talk to you, ride around on motorcycles and, you know, travel the planet, just helping people just go for stupid. And so, no, there's nothing really exciting in me. I, I do live vicariously through my life. Love it, man. Let's dig a little
0: bit deeper. Just to wrap this up, I want to dig down to this little boy, Steve, coming from where you grew up in the UK. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family life. And it, was there any setbacks when you were younger where you still thrive off of? You look back and you're like, man, because just to give you a quick background on this. My dad, when I was 11, threw a $100 bill at me and said, you're going to need this when you're living on the streets with your mother one day. Now, I don't hold that against my dad, but I use that every single day. I converted that to rocket fuel because I'm going to outer space. There's no limitations. I know that in my mind. Um, and I teach people that. But, but is, there, is there a moment like that growing up? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So I left school at the age of 50 from East London. That's 50, 15, sorry. I left school at the age of 15. And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I slept in one day, the following day, dad kicked the bed at 430 and said, right, you're on the building site. Um, and that was it, you know. I was just on the building site. I started off just being a hod carrier and a labourer, and mixing up the cement, and just basically cleaning up after all of them. Then my dad started teaching me how to become a bricklayer, and I just thought, "Is this my life? You know?" And again, that that entrepreneurial gene that says, "Is this it? You know? Is this what you got?" And for me, being coming from an Irish family, living in East London, you know, you work on the building sites, come Friday night, you go into a pub, you get drunk, you'd have a punch up, and then you'd start again Monday. That was was it. And I was very bitter at how poor I was. It wasn't until my early 20s that I realized I got up at 4.30 in the morning to go to work, and I would come home at 10 o'clock at night. I was always loved. I was always protected. Boys always had my back. You know, my dad would always hug me and pick me up when I fell over. I didn't realize how wealthy I was, but I was just clarifying or classing it as being poor. My parents were actually educating me to show me what I was capable of. But I remember this one day, and it's, it's in my book, um, but well, I'll tell it now, so you ain't got to buy the book. Um, I was on the building site. And I was carrying some bricks on what they called a hod, which was like this weird contraption that you strapped onto your shoulder. And I, I climbed up the scaffolding and I got to the top of the scaffolding and right at the edge of the scaffolding, the first person I I was next to was my dad who run the, the building site. And next to him was my uncle, his brother. Next to him was my two cousins. Now I was like 16 years old. He was, my cousin was 19 and the other one was like 26. Um, so they were both older than me and bullying me and slapping me, but they were you know, still within close enough generations, you know, so that we, we hung out. And then next to them was my granddad, who was in his 80s. Now, with this pile of bricks on my shoulder, I suddenly saw my entire lifeline. I saw my entire generations on one building site, on one scaffolding. And I froze. And my dad yelled at me, I put the bricks down, go and get some more. But this was such a turning point in my life that when the whistle went and we could all go in the tea hut, I went running up to my granddad who was rained on. He was cold. He was pouring some tea out of a flask, breathing on it to try and cool it down before he tried to get warm. And I ran up to him. Now bearing in mind, young whippersnapper, 16 years old. My granddad in his eighties, but still just nigh on seven foot tall big lump of an Irish lad. And I ran up to him and I'm like, granddad, granddad. And he didn't even look at me, just carried on blowing into his tea. And he's like, what's that? And I went, granddad, did you ever think you'll be doing this when you were this old? Now that statement should have got me a smack in the nose. You know, granddad didn't even skip a beat, carried on breathing into his tea. And I remember this. I can remember the smell of the tea hut which was a caravan basically with the wheels pulled off and he turned around. He said, son, you don't quit today. You'll be me tomorrow. The entire caravan of about 40 bricklayers and laborers went quiet. I could only hear that moment. Those words. The next thing I heard was the siren going off for everyone to get back on the building site? And I came running out of the caravan because my dad was up at the front. Now my dad hated being called dad, okay, on the building site with all the builders around. He used to be called Cuz for some reason, you know, Irish nickname. Yeah. yeah. And I came out of there, and everyone else is funneling out of this caravan to go back on the building site. And I'm like, Dad, 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 give it dad, dad. And he's looking at me, he's like, shut up, what, what? And I ran up to him and I went dad, I, I was up there and I saw you and I saw my, I saw my uncle and I came down and I saw granddad and I went, dad, did you ever think you'd be doing it? And I started spouting at him. And I said, and he said, if you don't quit today, be... i got to quit that. And my dad looked at me and he went, what are you going to do? And I went, I dunno, but it can't be this. And again, sounds disrespectful. And I said, and I can't be granddad tomorrow. Now, here's the thing. My granddad was a big, big lad, big lad. My dad, funny enough, missed that gene pool, something <laughs> horrendous, was like five foot six. Whoa, you know, whoa I was.
0: Whoa, whoa, take it easy now.
1: I'm five, uh, six and three quarters now. <laughs> well, I'm six. My granddad is seven. And my dad, now the funny thing is you can imagine... In a pub on a Friday night, it was always my dad that went off first, you know, because he was the smallest. He obviously had something to prove, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course you have. As my granddad walked behind me, I felt his presence because he stopped. I didn't turn around, but I saw my dad look up to him. I saw them communicate somehow. And my dad looked at me and he went, we're light handed. You finish Friday. I never, my granddad died soon after that. I never, ever got to show my granddad the impact he had by that moment. But if he had not spoken to me in that in that hut, I would not have quit and started so many jobs that I was not built for, failed so many times to the point that I'm now living here in the hills up in Los Angeles and <laughs> quite happy. If it not had been for him, I'd have never started on my journey.
0: That's what you're made of. So I, I, I waited to the end of the show to dig to it because I, you know, like, like sometimes when I'm, I'm hanging out with my wife, man, I, I, I get try to get to the point too quick, you know what I mean, in the bedroom, but I, I got to take it easy. man I got to warm them up. I, I have problem with that, Steve. So thank, thank you for getting to it, though. So uh, listen, I want to I want to just share with the audience one more time that Facebook group or the book or whatever you want to share with uh, the audience right now.
1: Well, we've got an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. It's a free Facebook group. Um, we got Bluefish in the Art of Making Things Happen is the book. But basically, if you jump onto stevedsims.com, and there's only one M in Sims, stevedsims.com, you can find out about the book, my events, my Facebook, sign up for the newsletter and get the cheat sheet of the book free of charge.
0: Well, I just joined that group. It's uh, it's got tons of members. I'm gonna get in there and, and uh, and, and participate a little bit because I'm interested Perfect. in this, and I, I want to hang out with you, dude. And you want to know my why? <laughs> you want to know why? my why? Because yeah, I, I want go. I want. I don't want to go to the International Space Station, but just figuratively speaking, I, I can't be stopped with what I want to do. And I just I'm I'm intrigued on what you could, what kind of mission you could send me on because I have no limits. I have no limits. So I, I'll Perfect. figure that out. And uh, I'm just intrigued by you, and uh, I appreciate you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on the show today, the What Are You Made Of show, and uh, and sharing, man, because that, that was awesome. And, and the last part, I think, was my
1: favorite, man. So, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate you for being here. Thank you, Steve. And uh, you guys
0: have been listening to the What Are You Made Of podcast with your boy, Mike Searock. Keep joining us. Thank you so much for your support. Go get that Rocket Fuel book at MikeSearock.com forward slash book. MikeSearock.com forward slash book. That book will change your life. Till next time, guys, be good. I want to remind you. That the Rocket Fuel book is available at my website, mikecrockcom forward slash book. That's MikeCROC.com forward slash book. Go get yourself a copy. Thank you so much for your support and your listenership. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of What Are You Made Of? Be sure to check my website out at themikecrock.com TheMikeCROC with no K and let us know how we can help you or your business reach its full potential. Feel free to leave a review or follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Mike C-Rock Again, thank you for joining me and see you guys on the next episode.